Today's reading is Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, He may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirah the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she replied. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, 
Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, Oh, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Peter. Um, that text was rated R, and I'm, I'm glad that we had a very good reader this morning to read that for us. Um, we finished our uh, sermon series on Joseph and uh, Jacob and Joseph, uh, but we before we passed over this uh, chapter, and so I wanted to go back um, to it and see that this is God's word still speaking to us. But let's pray that God will speak this morning. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for every part of the Scripture. We thank you for this difficult text that's been recorded for us. And we pray now that you will use these words, that you will use this text, and speak in the power of your spirit, that it may shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mind the gap is a phrase that the British used to point to the gap between the train and the platform. Mind the gap. Watch out for the gap as you go over. Well, when we read the Bible, we have to also mind the gap. The Bible isn't a collection of sayings or aphorisms or sort of these timeless principles that can be plucked away from their context. But this is the word of God the reveal, revealed through history. In time and space, it's a revelation of who God is through, in, and through his interactions with real people who live in real place in history. And the time and space at this, uh, the story of Genesis 38 is about 4,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. Of course, we're still human beings, and so we can relate to the characters in the Bible, even with this uh, gap that's, uh, that's there. But this story, I think, is particularly difficult because the gaps are wide. Historical and cult- cultural gaps are everywhere, and so I think we do need to explain this a little bit. So let me begin by telling you and sort of summarizing this story in a way that hopefully will make sense to you. Um, and, 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 and see that this is the word of God, still useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, even, even if you don't know much about the Bible, you have probably heard of Judah, the name Judah, the famous son of Israel. Uh, well, at this point of the story, Judah is more infamous than famous. The first thing that we're told about him in chapter 38 
is that he goes off and marries a Canaanite woman and has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. This, of course, is something that the family wasn't supposed to do. Remember back, in, uh, 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 back when Abraham, in his dying breath, he makes his children promise, I want you to swear by the Lord, the, the God of heavens and the God of the earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. This is not something that they were supposed to do. Uh, but Judah ignores the custom and goes off. He goes off and has three sons with the Canaanite woman. The first son, heirs, heir, uh, uh, first son's wife, heir's son, is uh, named Tamar. And we're told, uh, we're not told of what he did exactly, but we're told that he was wicked in God's sight. And God takes his life away. And this leaves Tamar in a predicament. First, she's a widow. In the ancient Near East, widows had no way to provide for themselves. So in that patriarchal society, she had, uh, she had to belong to another man. Not once again. This isn't saying that patriarchy is good, but this is the, the God is inter- interacting with people who lived in that patriarchal society. And secondly, having no children, uh, having, having children, especially boys, is important because it meant that the lineage, the line of the fathers would continue. This also had property implications. The land that was allotted to the husband could only remain if she had children. Not only that, in that culture, not having a children brought great shame for the women. Once again, because the women's worth was so tied to having children in that society. So if she didn't have a child, then she's not fulfilling the purpose. So in the Bible, one way that God shows mercy to many women is actually opening up the wombs of many barren women. Think about all the people, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, mother of Samson, uh, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. They're all barren women who God graciously allows to have children. That's how God shows grace in that context, in that culture. So in the ancient Near East, there was a, a also a process that would solve uh, this problem what is now called the Leverite law. And so this, uh, much smarter people tell me that Levir uh, in Latin means brother-in-law. And it's the uh, uh, so Leverite marriage. Uh, when a woman's husband dies, then she is given to her brother. The brother then would marry her, but the children that they would have would not belong to the, the second brother, but the original deceased um, brother so that the brother's line would continue and the property could continue and remain with that family. This also provided uh, the widow with a means of living, provision. In fact, this is actually not just in the ancient Near East. This was fairly common in the ancient world. It happened in Asia. It, happens, uh, it happened in uh, many parts of Africa and in some European countries too. So think about uh, William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Uh, the brother of the deceased king Hamlet... Um, uh, sorry. The brother of the deceased King Hamlet, Claudius, marries Gertrude uh, in the name of defending Gertrude um, and the realm. So it was an accepted practice. This is what happened. So when Tamar's husband dies, Onan, the second brother, second son of Judah, uh, should have taken her and do his duty of providing her with a child. But Look what he does in verse 9. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground um, to keep from providing offspring for his brother. 
You see, he doesn't want Tamar to have a child because if he did, then the son uh, wouldn't be his. He had to take care of them, but the son wouldn't be his. And the property that would actually belong to him now because the, his brother, elder son died, wouldn't be his anymore. And so he doesn't want Tamar to have a child. So he doesn't do the thing that is due to her. So he, while he enjoys the sex, he does not fulfill his duty. And as we're told in verse 10, Yahweh saw this as wicked and God judges him and put him to death. After the, sec- uh, the death of the second son, Judah then sent Tamar back um, to her, her father, promising, uh, the, the, uh, promising the third son when he grows up. And think of, a, think of the shame of Tamar, having been married twice, not being able to have any children, and as a grown person going back to her parents to live with her parents. And the worst thing was that Judah had no intention of giving uh, her the third son. He blames her for, uh, he blamed her for the death of the two sons. Look at verse 11. He sends her away, for he thought he too may die, just like his brothers. You see, he thought that somehow this is Tamar's fault. My sons are good. Tamar's, this is something that Tamar did. Uh, so he blames her uh, and, and, and removes her far away from the third son. So if you look down to verse 14, Tamar has to take the matters into her own hands. Because even though Shelah now is grown up, many years have passed, Shelah is now grown up. The third son is uh, grown up, but Judah didn't give her the son. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. She looks for an opportunity to correct uh, the situation. So in verse 12, uh, we're told that here, uh, she hears that Judah's wife dies. And he, she waits until uh, the mourning period is over. The grief period is over. Then one day she hears that Judah goes, is going up to shear, uh, to take part in this shearing festival. Um, the time of shearing sheep was a, a, a time of festivity. It was a little bit like harvest festival. When people harvested the sheep, uh, the, 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 the wool, um, and drank and ate together with other people. So it wouldn't be surprising that Judah is a little bit tipsy at this point. And knowing the kind of man that Judah is, Tamar sees an opportunity. She takes off her widow's clothing. She covers her face like a prostitute and waits by the way of her uh, father-in-law. And the conversation here is very curt and crude. And Judah says to her in verse 16, Come now, let me sleep with you. And then she responds by saying, What will you give me to sleep with you? Verse 17, I will send you a young goat from my flock. Um, but Tamar says, okay, well, what, what can I have as a f- pledge until that comes? Well, he, uh, she asks for his seal, the cord, and the staff. Verse 18, the seal and the cord is a bit like the Chinese seal that carries a legal weight. It's a bit like uh, his ID card and a credit card. Um, and the, the, the staff, the symbol of his authority... And it's a bit like stealing somebody's identity, right? And after that transaction, so he's very willing to give this um, to her. And after that, the, the, after the transaction, they sleep together. And now she's pregnant. Judah 
Meanwhile, it says, wants the stuff back because he needs it for, uh, for, for his living. So he, he sends his friends, a Dolomite, uh, with the goat to find the woman, but they can't find anybody because she, she wasn't there. Uh, no prostitute was there. And he can't make a big deal out of this. He can't make a big deal out of the search. Because if he did, if he asked, started asking everybody around, then it would become obvious to everybody that he slept with the prostitute. So he says in verse 23, or will become a laughingstock. So he doesn't, he cuts his loss. He has got a, he's got a reputation to maintain. So after three months time, he hears that Tamar is pregnant that she had been a prostitute. And look what he says. There's no consideration that she might be innocent. He doesn't want to hear from Tamar because what he hears now uh, is something that he thought he suspected all along. Of course she is guilty. Of course she's a prostitute. Of course she's the reason my son died. My son's died, died. And so he says, now burn her. The hypocrisy is stunning there. I mean, obviously, uh, the, 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 he is condemning his daughter-in-law for possible prostitution without a trial or anything when he is guilty of prostitution and sleeping with her. But Tamar had planned this all along at the last minute as she's being dragged out, verse 25, as she was being brought out, she pulls out the seal and the cord and the staff says, whose is this? And there, for the first time in this story, and the first time in Genesis, Judah realizes what he's done wrong. He can't deny it. She's done it publicly. She has his identity papers. The hypocrisy is plain. He's condemning somebody for prostitution, but he is also guilty of, uh, of sleeping with a prostitute. And what's more important than that? He's also uh, seeing what he has done to Tamar, but that, that, that by depriving her of the third son, uh, as he was supposed to, as he was obligated to by the culture and the law around, um, around him, he put Tamar in a desperate position, in a position of no win. Seeing this in verse 26, for the first time he recognizes his wrong. He says, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shela, he finally sees that he's in the wrong. And the twin sons are born, Perez and um, Zella. Perez, breakthrough, and Zella, the scarlet thread. I hope uh, now that the story makes a little bit more sense um, to you, but I suppose you might be asking, why is this in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? Why is this recorded here? Well, there are many, I think, reasons that I can point to. But I think the first is simply that it happened. Why else would you record this? Why else would you record this? If you're creating a religion, and if you're creating myths about the patriarchal fathers, why would you invent such a story? Or why would you even record this story if it didn't happen? And often people regard the Bible like a, a little bit like chicken, chicken soup for the, for the soul. You know that, those books, Chicken Soup for the Soul? It's got nice sort of moving and uh, stories of motivation and, and inspiration. People regard the Bible to be like that often. 
I, I recently watched a clip of Richard Dawkins, the, the famous atheist uh, scientist uh, in Oxford, getting really mad because he says that the Bible is full of misogyny and patriarchy and abuse, pointing to passages like this. He would say that the Bible is no good because it has contributed to and perpetuated the violence and this sort of misogyny and terror. Well, I think he's reading the Bible badly. He is expecting the Bible to be a bit like chicken soup uh, for the soul. But the Bible isn't part of that empire, the collection of made-up stories that will make us feel good. The Bible is record of God's interaction with real people. And the problem with real people is that real people are sinful people. Problem with the culture around the, around us is that the culture is fallen. It's sinful there. Yes, the Bible contain, uh, contains stories of mis- uh, sort of uh, patriarchy and, and, and uh, this uh, sort of reduction of women to uh, having value in, in, in having offspring only. Yes, it contains stories of people having more than one wife. But that doesn't mean that the Bible condones them or that it, uh, uh, it promotes them. It's just that God has interacted with those people, and the Bible records them. So it's recorded in the Bible, partly because it happened. This happened. Another reason this is recorded is because this is a record of how God looks out for the widow, as he often does throughout the Bible. You see, what Tamar, you see, uh, what Tamar suffered is injustice, injustice in that culture. It looked like that. She's left destitute without ability um, to continue her husband's line and with the shame of not being able to have any children. So she takes the matter into her hands and fights uh, for what is due uh, to her. She fights for justice, and God helps her, doesn't he? Uh, The whole plan, I mean, is without flaw, Uh, Uh, That one time that she slept uh, with Judah, she gets pregnant, not just with one child, but with two children, which is a double blessing in biblical terms, women being able to have children in this way. And if you have ever tried to get pregnant, you know how improbable this is. God has opened uh, opened up her womb. He blesses her, not only with getting what is due to her, getting justice, but blesses her with children. God is on the side of the widow, as he often is in the scripture. This is a record of that. But there's another story here, too. The story of God's mercy towards Judah. Before this chapter, chapter 38, is chapter 37, where actually uh, Joseph gets sold into slavery. And the person who suggests that uh, they sell, the brothers sell Joseph into slavery is Judah. Judah is the ringleader there. Let's sell Joseph. And so with him as a ringleader, they do. And in this chapter, we've already seen how he marries a Canaanite. He also does not take care uh, of the weakest in the family, Tamar. Finds it okay uh, to sleep with a, a prostitute. And we see his hypocrisy of condemning her and judging her in this way. But the story is partly about how God uses Tamar to bring Judah into repentance. Because of Tamar, he finally sees a wrong that he's doing. He repents. He recognizes what he's doing, what he's done. It's hinted here that he's changed. 
right? Um, when, when he admits that she has been more righteous than I, he's admitting that he has been in the wrong. In fact, the next time we see Judah is chapter 44. If you fast forward a little bit, um, when Benjamin is accused of stealing a cup from Pharaoh, uh, from Joseph, um, and uh, Joseph wants to keep Benjamin in Egypt. And it's Judah who stands forward and says, no, I'll take his place. I'll take his punishment. The same guy who sold Joseph into slavery is the same man who will say, no, 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 send Benjamin back. I'll stand in his place. So we see the transformation that has happened. And as far as we know, for chapter 38 is the story that precipitated that change. So it's in the Bible because it's a record of how God shows mercy towards his children who have gone far away, how God disciplines sinners. But one more reason, more than that, and perhaps more importantly than that, um, there is a special reason why Judah is mentioned. The focus in Judah is strong in the Old Testament because Judah is a special tribe in Israel. Judah will inherit the promised, not the heart of the promised land, including Jerusalem. Judah is the line from which King David will come, who is considered the greatest of kings. And to the son of King David, this is what God promises in 2 Samuel 7. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. You see, God promises from the David's line, from Judah's line, from David's line, will come the Messiah. A king whose line will last forever. And you know how the genealogy or how the New Testament starts. This New Testament starts with Matthew. And Matthew's uh, gospel starts with the genealogy. These are, this is the um, Matthew 1, 1 and on. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, the Hezron the father of Ram, and so on. Jesus' genealogy includes those three people that we saw today, Tamar, Judah, Perez, uh, and also uh, Zerah. This is a remarkable story of how, of how a Gentile woman preserved the line that will produce King David, and through King David, also Jesus. It's recorded because it's the story of the royal family, the family that is to come. But what does that mean for all of us? What's the good news here? Well, I think partly it's there because to tell you that if you are in this category of helpless and vulnerable, in the margins, God is on your side. God has been on uh, our side, the, the side of the, 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 uh, the people in the margins. He was on the side of Tamar. And if you are in the fringes of society, the vulnerable, the God is on your side. And this is a message that is consistent throughout the Bible. God is with you as you struggle. The story also means for us that when we go astray, that God will not simply abandon us. Judah goes off the rail with all the sins in his life, but God corrects him. God brings him back. He brought him to the place of repentance 
and made him the tribe from which David and Jesus will come. The process of correction isn't easy. It hurts, hurts people. God's discipline isn't easy. And actually, our sins will hurt ourselves and others. But God does not just abandon us in our sins and the consequence to our, the consequences are sins. He will discipline us and he will bring us back because he loves us. That's in this story as well. But the true gospel, I think, in this story is that both Judah and Tamar um, are sinners, come across as people who are not good. Judah, we have seen, is just a despicable character in this story. And look what Judah says about Tamar. He says, she is more righteous than I. Well, in some ways, that's not a high compliment, is it? Is it? Because Judah is really not a very good character. You are more righteous than I. I mean, the thing, but it's true. Tamar isn't completely innocent either. Yes, she was in desperate position. She didn't have uh, much she, she could do, but she then tricks uh, her father-in-law. She plays uh, prostitutes and engages in this incestual relationship that is not good. You see, and that's good news for us. Because we're all, all that we can say about ourselves is perhaps maybe I am a little bit more righteous than you. Maybe some of you here. Or that, but we all stand in relative righteousness to each other. But none of us, none of us are able to say, is able to say, I am righteous. None of us are able, is able to say, I am not a sinner. We are all sinners. As Romans 3 declares, none is righteous, not even one. Judah isn't, Tamar, Tamar isn't, you aren't, and I am not. Everyone in Jesus' genealogy, if you go back to Matthew, uh, even in this ultimate royal family tree, in this line um, through which Jesus comes, everybody in that genealogy is sinful, are tainted. But that's good news. Because everybody still belongs to that royal family. Everybody belongs through Christ. We try very hard to be good, don't we? Sometimes we think that our sin disqualifies us from being in God's family. The good news in the story is that it does not. We belong through Christ. That's good news. Sometimes we think that God's will is thwarted by our sinful actions. The good news in the story is that God is not thwarted by what we do, our sinful actions. God works in and through them. God's grace will break through, will come out in unexpected ways, like Perez did, again and again in our lives in the most unexpected ways. And even though we are sinful, God saves us. Tamar, Judah, and all of us get to be in God's family because of God's mercy. Because Christ died for us on the cross and paid for our sins because he is our older brother. He is the eldest brother. He has the inheritance that can never perish or fade because he is the firstborn of all creation who has the inheritance and now shares with all of us, all those who would come to him. It's true. The Bible is uh, a difficult book. We have to mind the gaps as we read it. But if we read it carefully, if we pay attention, 
we'll see how God, God who is gracious, God who takes care of widows and orphans, God who corrects those who go astray, God who by his love and grace adopts sinners into his family. That's the story of Tamar. That's the story of Jacob and Joseph, as we've seen. And if you have turned to Christ, you are included in that story, and you are included in that royal family tree. That's what this story shows, and that is good news. Let's pray. Lord, as we read um, the story of Judah and Tamar and, and the stories in the scripture, we see not only the biblical character's sinfulness, but Lord, we know that it's, uh, our sinfulness is there. We come to realize our sins, our um, adultery that we commit in our minds, um, the, the jealousy and envy and greed and all those things that are in our minds, in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that it is not on the basis of our righteousness that we are accepted into your family, that we are accepted because of the righteousness of Christ, your Son. And help us to be rooted in these stories. Help us to know our sinfulness as well as your grace, that we may go and live to proclaim the grace that we've received. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.